to play on K, the Korean drama podcast with Emily and Raquel. And this is a show where we take a K-drama, we watch it four episodes at a time, and then we get together here every week to talk about it. Yeah, this week we are doing our bonus episode for Mr. Sunshine. Yeah, and so as our special guest, we have invited my husband, Jason, who's working on his master's degree in military history with a focus on East Asia, who just loved the show. Who just freaking loved it. Okay, say hi. Hi. Very good. Now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jason, you never watch K-dramas with me. What other K-dramas have you ever seen? Um, I haven't seen very many. Uh, A few. Maybe three. I can only remember The Sound of Your Heart because it was a really funny show. But other than that, I think I've only kind of seen a little bit of your K-drama shows just by proximity, just mm. kind of walking around. Yeah. Every okay. once in a while, I remember you watching an episode or two of stuff when we when you guys lived in the same city as me. And Emily and I just had them on the TV all the time. Mm-hmm. So you had to watch them. <laughs> you were forced. Um, why did you watch Mr. Sunshine with me? Um, yeah, I don't know. It looked cool. Um, and like you said, I, I like Asian history and, uh, East Asian history and stuff like that. So I was curious, uh, about some of the, I don't know, the ways that it wanted to, to show, uh, it, I guess, in, in a cinematic way. Um, so yeah, it just looked, it looked pretty cool from like a, as like a historical drama. I was Mm. kind of curious what it was about. It's interesting because I feel like I learned a lot from this drama, but also I don't know... I mean, I I looked up a couple of things, but I don't know everything that was entirely historically accurate. I kind of got a sense that most of the big background events, or not always background events, but the biggest things that were happening, like the occupation, obviously, was very real, but I didn't Mm -hmm. know if the Righteous Army was real or not until I looked it up. Um, yeah did you have anything that like you knew had happened uh as Um, you were watching it yeah so most of my my focus is is on japan i don't actually i don't focus on korea that much um most of my like research or studies that i've done are mostly on u.s japan relations um so i kind of know about uh japan korea relations in that regard um and uh i kind of know like uh a little bit about like like for example i thought it was interesting because the show starts off with uh you know teddy roosevelt sending eugene to uh open korea up to trade with the u.s which is like a pretty common theme of that period of u.s history with this kind of uh, we call it the the era of gunboat diplomacy where essentially Western powers uh, were showing up in um, these isolated Asian countries and with their their big industrialized warships pointing guns at them and being like, open up and uh, or we'll, uh, uh, you know, bomb your capital. Politely uh, knocking on the door, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> America. America. Right. And... Uh, 
I mean, it was, yeah, America was definitely doing it. It was something that they that they learned from uh, the way, like, European empires were kind of taking control of things. And, uh, yeah, I thought that the show did a cool kind of juxtaposition of that, right? That we had the, um, you know, the U.S. troops invading, I think it's Guanga Island, with their, uh, you know, advanced rifles and all of their... Um, their artillery that's on their ship. Meanwhile, the the Koreans have old-fashioned flintlock rifles and bows and arrows and things like that, old gunpowder cannons. Um, and that's kind of like a, a pretty common, like a, an interesting theme, I guess, in the history of like foreign relations is this moment where big Western industrialized powers are showing up and uh, trying to access Asian markets um by force and so it was cool that they kind of used that um as as a backdrop for their show yeah or at least introducing it did you know much about like the russia japan war as well yeah um as far as like i i haven't done any like deep things on on the russo-japanese war uh i do know um that it was it was essentially kind of a, a sealing moment for uh, for Japan because Japan first had to fight China to be like we want control of Korea and then they had to fight Russia and uh, after they after they beat Russia there was essentially no challengers left for them to to have to like uh, deal with if they wanted to be to have Korea in their like sphere of influence and why um, did they want Korea? Um. Good question. Lots of reasons. I think Japan, like, uh, first of all, like, there's always a geographical thing where Japan is a small island country. It doesn't have a lot of natural resources. It doesn't have a lot of space. But after the they, they were Japan was kind of emerging from um, a, a, a big change in their government. They had reformed their government and uh, they were like working towards industrialization like the western powers so they had warships and like new guns and all sorts of like um they were trying to mimic what western powers were doing and uh in doing so one of the things they saw western powers were doing was colonizing other weaker nations so japan was like we need to do that too otherwise those european powers are going to show up and conquer us so it was kind of they had a very like uh, eat or be eaten kind of mentality. Um, if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing. And that was a big reason why they like Korea was has always been a, a historical kind of thing that uh, Japan wanted control over just for its extra space resources, things like that. Out of curiosity, and I definitely know this is like exiting your area of expertise and what you know so if the answer is like i don't know then that makes sense i also don't know um but uh do you know why korea was so i guess like behind uh japan in development like that they only had these bow and arrows and these old guns that they had to light the wick to fire right yeah, so the the industrial revolution happened a lot later in uh, in East Asia, and I think from a, a 
global or like a world history kind of perspective, one of the reasons for that was because those dynasties um, went through they uh, the the Korean dynasty. China was the same way that they they went through these transitions where in the with their new governments or whoever was leading the new dynasty, their policy became isolation mm. because uh, they were seeing the effects of colonialism in China. They were seeing the colonial effects in all these other parts of East Asia, right? The the British were in Hong Kong and um, it was kind of a, a eye-opening moment that they were seeing, um, like for example, like China's always a big one because they were sort of the leaders, right? They were always the biggest country, had the biggest army. Um, they were the ones that spread their language all throughout East Asia. So one of the things they did is they went it for an isolation perspective, right? They, they kind of closed themselves off to foreign trade. They didn't let foreigners come in. It was like just a, they, they became more and more insular for like hundreds of years. And uh, in doing so, um, they had to, most of their wars or things were fought kind of internally and they never had an opportunity to like open up for like that industrialization that was going on in Europe as a result of like Europe's wars and things that were constantly going on. So. so I thought Japan was isolated as well. Did they just open up their borders a lot sooner? Yeah. Yeah. So they like Japan is an industrial power kind of, it, it is a bit of like a domino effect where that I was, I mentioned earlier that era of gunboat diplomacy, um, this guy, Commodore Perry, he's a, an American diplomat, showed up in um, Japan with a big old gunship, a bunch of a flotilla of gunships, uh, and showed up in uh, what would have then been called Edo, but is today Tokyo, and uh, asked to see the leader of Japan. So they brought him to the shogun, who was like the uh, Japanese uh, military dictator, kind of leader guy at the time. And... Uh, was like, you're going to open trade to the U.S., otherwise we're going to bomb your city with our big ships. Uh, and Japan was the same way. They had rifles, but they were, like, old-fashioned, um, and then they just had all of their, you know, swords and bows and things like that. So they didn't really have a, a lot of uh, power to, to do much. So the Shogun ended up opening Japan to the U.S. for trade and uh, ended the isolation policy was that in like the 1800s yeah it was in like the mid 1800s that that oh. happened mm. and that actually so the uh sort of political opponents of the shogun used that as an opportunity to be like hey that guy just opened our borders to foreigners he doesn't have that power that power should be for the emperor he's the only one that should be able to open the borders up so they used that as an opportunity to raise a a rebellion and overthrow the shogun and that is what kind of initiated that cycle of um opening up japan ending their feudalist system and changing to eventually having like a uh a what is it called democratic monarchy um because of the the people who kind of led the movement to overthrow the shogun and end the feudalist system were kind of pro-western um, thinking people and so they uh, 
they're the ones that kind of pushed they had like a bunch of japanese scholars go out and like study in europe and come back and like help guide japan into kind of this industrial uh state which was like pretty remarkable because the um like in the in the course of like a few decades like japan was strong enough they went from flintlock rifles to being able to defeat china and russia in wars so like it was like a pretty remarkable expansion which then is also kind of like we saw in the show revealed like how much i guess more ahead they were than korea at the time because korea didn't do that until much later yeah like the late 1800s and by the time they did japan had already kind of catapulted into the industrial age right that is very interesting yeah dang this do you is ever the most... get overwhelmed by like how much you don't know <laughs> now i do yes in this moment <laughs> <laughs> i found myself doing that a lot with this k-drama though like i felt a little bit overwhelmed about it it seems like it wasn't an entirely new concept to me that Japan had occupied Korea prior to any world wars. Because uh, I'm pretty sure that, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, not the history expert sitting at the table right now, but I'm pretty sure that they later go on to occupy, Japan later goes on to occupy Korea again during, I want to say it was the first world war, but it might have been both world wars. Um um yeah as as far as like some stuff that i looked up into it, it it's uh like korea or like japan informally uh like annexed korea in like 1905 and then officially in 1910 and the uh annexation didn't end until after 1945 when uh japan lost the second world war um i know that they that uh korea had a a lot of push like gave a lot of pushback all throughout that time period but i think by international standards uh korea stayed a protectorate call either a protectorate or a colony of japan for that entire you know 35 years or so i know that in the sense of history that isn't a very long time like 35 years is kind of a drop in the bucket for how many hundreds of years these countries have been i don't know established but it also it's buck wild to think that what we saw in this k-drama continued to go on for another like 30 years after the k-drama ended that yeah kind of hurts because i was so attached <laughs> to like the righteous army and their cause mm -hmm. oh man um do you know much about the uprising of 1919 because i know we ended like one of the final scenes was uh watching little domi who's now a a big adult um he he's with his i don't know compatriots his comrades at eugene Choi's gravesite. um but when i was looking around on the internet i did find that 1919 was kind of a specific date where there was a peaceful uprising against the Japanese occupation. Obviously, that didn't end it, though. Do you know much about it? Right. Yeah, that was like the was March first March first incident or something like that. The March first protests that uh, 
It is still honored today, right? Yeah, I think it's still considered a, a pretty big um, historical. I think it's uh, like a national holiday. Holiday kind but of thing. I'm not sure. This yeah. is Wikipedia information. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, I I think that that was a a moment in, um, in yeah for for them where yeah it it was kind of a, a pushback against uh, Japan, but as as uh we i think that like in response japan kind of doubled down on their like um subjugation um a lot more uh limitations on things like um like you you're not allowed to speak korean you have to speak japanese you need to wear japanese clothes or like western clothes um you can't practice like uh any traditional korean um you know uh Ceremonies. ceremonies or whatever like essentially they they japan was working harder and harder to try and limit um korean uh like identity they wanted them to feel like they were uh japanese and uh, yeah I, I remember uh one of my professors from university said that um if you if you find like older like uh, some of the older older generations of uh koreans today like a lot of them actually do speak Japanese like pretty fluently because of the kind of lingering um, influence of, of that era. Because they is... would have been like little kids growing up in like occupied Korea. Right. So they would have... would have had to be bilingual, like speak their parents' language, but pro almost primarily speak Japanese if they were growing up at that time. Right. Like you'd go to school and have to speak Japanese or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm sure there, there's probably some really interesting uh, case studies about it. They're probably mostly in Korean right now, but it'd be cool to see more of them uh, come come out in English for people to, to look at and read. Yeah. Um, something that kind of, I don't know, was uplifting for me that I did look into as far as history goes after I finished the show was... Um, just a little thing about Frederick McKenzie, who was the uh, reporter who worked for, I believe it was like the Daily Mail, London-based Daily Mail. Um, oh, yeah, I was wondering if that guy was real or not. Yeah, yeah, he was a real person. He was actually, so he was Canadian-born, and then he moved to the UK and worked for their Daily Mail as a, like a world reporter. Um and he was, like, he actually took that photo. That was a real, like, there is one existing photo of the Righteous Army. Oh. Um, and he, I, I didn't find the article he wrote, but I found a quote from the article he wrote that was really, really, really uplifting because it kind of removed him. A lot of the article I read about him kind of leaned in the direction of like white saviorism but he he totally disbanded that idea with part of the article he wrote was um i'll just quote this article which i got from korea.net and it says mckinsey once wrote a letter that he felt sorry for the soldiers since they had no weapons clothing and other supplies but later said such pity was misguided and then it quotes him directly saying, but as I looked, the sparkling eyes and the smiles of the sergeant to the right seemed to rebuke me. Pity. Maybe my pity was misplaced. 
At least they were showing their countrymen an example of patriotism. He said the war correspondent also quoted a righteous army general whom he had described as an officer who led combat and fought for a worthwhile cause as saying, we may have to die well, but so be it. It is much better to die as a free man than to live as the slave of Japan. So that was a real quote taken from the righteous army. Um, And uh, this uh, Frederick Mackenzie kind of commented like they don't need our pity they're fighting for a cause they believe in. So he kind of took himself out of that. Uh, I am the man who will save them. But he did end up later in 1919 uh, contributing as directly as he could to the uprising, both financially and spreading information about it, which was really cool. And there was a um, there was a Frederick A. McKinsey section of the, of the exhibition Korea's Independence Movement and Canadians that was held uh, the year that this article was written, which was in 2019, and he had his own section where they showed pictures actually from Mr. Sunshine. They didn't, uh, I think they also had the picture he took, but they took like scenes from Mr. Sunshine specifically because it was one of the like Korean created accounts of him being in Korea. And like, uh, I thought that was really, really cool. That is. That's so cool to know that he's real. I mean, first of all, kudos to the show for pulling in so many actual historical figures. And I feel like they also did a really good job of making them look like the historical figures. Yeah. Like, that's, uh We looked at, like, obviously, Teddy Roosevelt, I think, as Americans. We pretty instantly were like, oh, that was a pretty good pretty good depiction of him (laughs) but then when we were researching Ito Hirobumi we were like oh actually that actor looked a lot like the real man as well and it's just the attention to detail that went into this show is so impressive it will never fail to be so well put together yeah yeah, they did an, an incredible job. I feel like I learned so much. I'm also learning so much from Jason about what was actually happening. Um, yeah. Which is really cool. Um, kind of jumping more into the drama that we might have something come up that's more history related. Did you have, I mean, like, what did you think of the drama as a whole? What are your thoughts? Is there anything that, like, you must talk about? Um... Yeah, as far as like the drama, the the show itself, the story was was really compelling. I loved all the relationships and how they developed throughout the show. Um, lots of of really great uh, <clears throat> like dynamics between the relationships between the characters, uh, going through kind of that cycle of um, the the hero's path, you know, um, where uh, for for instance, like nothing beats. Sorry, am I allowed to like talk about like the spoilers of the yes. show and everything? Okay, like like nothing beats that final c- that scene where the three of them finally sit down together for drinks and uh, and on and the th- the boys all all have a, a cheers, you know, like that's that's like I don't know, that's pristine. Like <laughs> yes, in when you when you compare that to like where they came from, right? Right, just like man. And uh, you yourself, like um, nothing, nothing beats a character is that at first you're like, like, 
that character is cool, but I feel like I can't like them because I don't know. Like Hui Sung, you're like that guy is annoying and kind of a fool. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then yeah, and then um, Dong Mei is like kind of like a criminal bad guy. And then by the end, you're like crying as they're as they're uh, like dying <laughs> for the uh, the freedom of their country. Freedom of their country, or even just to like protect the person, like. You know, because I, I feel like the one of the interesting stories for those the three boys uh, is that they actually don't really care what happens to Joseon. They just care what happens to a, a Shin. And she wants Korea to, like, survive. So they're like, I mean, it's it's kind of just, like, they, they end up going hand in hand. They're like, if that's what you want, then I guess that's what we have to help you achieve by keeping you alive and helping you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, so obviously, and I don't know, like I'm, I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of weird, but I, I is, I for one, like, I feel like there's a lot of closure when characters and stories die at the end of the show. I don't know why. I just, I feel like, um, like that it gives me a sense of like that the story ended, uh, like you're allowed to move on. Yeah. Right, like it was their story, and their story is coming to a close. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, did you cry? Um, I I got like a little, I got a little like teary eyed, you know, <laughs> a little misty. Um, yeah, I got a little misty eyed, you know. Um, You're not a crier. You just don't really cry. Yeah. At, at like TV shows and movies. Yeah, yeah. I I feel like TV shows and, and movies. I don't know why. I have a I have a. a a level of separation i think that um i protects you yeah i guess protects me i don't know uh, yeah usually i cry but i have the protection of knowing that they are fiction so then i can get over it pretty easily this mm. one messed me up the show messed me up because it was historical yeah. yeah i mean yeah i feel like our main characters like you said on the last episode, they did a really good job of being like, they could have been real, wink, wink, yeah. but we know they're probably fictional, and we can be comforted knowing the actors are still out there somewhere, they're doing okay, but man, it's hard to just see people who were alive and were doing things for their country even if they were fictional characters there were people similar enough to them that are worth mourning yeah and that hurts yeah that was rough the part i we we talked about this in our last episode but the part that destroyed me the most was not anyone's death it was the part where the people of korea protected a shin while she was mourning uh miss haman yeah mm-hmm. that was emotional that was emotionally rough because then eugene's giving a speech about how they're not broken and i'm like okay i believe you because they're they're still here i'm broken though i know that makes me wish we knew more about the march first movement i really feel like i want our listeners to go look it up because it feels like such an such a hugely important event that happened but i have done one wikipedia article worth of research on it so i feel like a fool trying to explain like this massive uprising 
because I think it's similar to that scene, but on this massive scale where so many Koreans showed up to be like, okay, we're done with Japanese oppression. We're going to get our country back. And it didn't work. And that's horrifying and sad, but it was something. It was people standing up for their countries in these massive amounts of numbers. And so... I think that's worth knowing about and worth respecting that that these people fought so hard. And that was something that Jason was telling me yesterday, that the Japanese were pretty surprised at Korea's reaction to being annexed. They were surprised that they didn't want to just be ruled by the new Japanese forces. Yeah, because, like, uh, again, it kind of goes back to that same idea of, like, the imperial powers of Europe um, were, you know, picking and choosing, like, who they wanted to rule, who they wanted to control. And Japan kind of maybe had a little bit of an attitude of, like, do you want the devil you know or the devil you don't? Because um, if, you know, if Japan doesn't hold Korea, then Russia will. And as the, as the Japanese, we also have to think, like, do we want Russia right across the street from us? You know, like, uh, not really. So maybe we need to take the initiative and we need to hold Korea so that, uh, you know, so that Russia doesn't come in and, and hold that territory. Or And if Russia doesn't hold it, then the British will hold it or, you know, the French will hold it. Someone bigger and stronger is going to show up and take Korea. So maybe we should do it first. Um, and uh, obviously, like, again, it was it was done in a way that was completely brutal and uh, very authoritarian. Um, but yeah, there was a, a slight sense of, like, that Japan was, like, kind of saving Korea from, from all of these other countries and, like, this the fate of, of colonialization by Western powers. Right. At the very least, um, they believed it. Like, they felt yeah. it in their hearts. So it was like, why wouldn't you want us here? Right. Yeah. And I and I think that in the show, that was kind of something I, I, I talked to Em about, that um, we... I don't know. I kind of wish that this show had so, uh, at least a few slightly less one-dimensional Japanese, like imperial Japanese characters. Um, I feel like uh, they. I feel like they did a great job, and they they totally uh, justified like showing how like the brutality of of the the Japanese occupation. Uh, I think that's something that that definitely happened and, and shouldn't be like uh, understated. Um, but the I think that those like leading characters could have been a bit more two dimensional. They kind of just seemed like mustache twirling bad guys, mm. right? It's just like, haha, we're here for Korea and we're going to take it over, yeah. and it's ours now. <laughs> um, but like, I think that they w they would have had very like significantly more distinct ideologies. I think that they would have thought of Korea. Like, I think Emily said this, like that they probably would have thought of Korean people as people, not just like. You know the like second class citizens, sure, but still like people. And uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I I think that the it would have been interesting to see to see the show explore that a little bit more deeply uh, through some of those characters. But for the most part, um, I don't know. Maybe just for the sake of like the the main drama with the the kind of 
uh, five main characters. They they just needed them to be kind of like antagonists, and that's it. And yeah. I, I see them being fine. I actually, in a way, think that it was like I actually agree that it would have been nice to see a more like a deeper exploration of why Japan. Um, I guess like more than just the we're stronger so we deserve it justification but like why every single Japanese person we saw besides Ko um, was pretty yeah like you said pretty one-dimensional and out for one thing Uh, that said I actually did read one article just kind of skimmed through it but the there was a letter written um, about Dong Mei's character because people, uh, some people in Korea felt that they gave him too much justification to commit the atrocities he did against the Korean people. So essentially, um, the Mucin society being a real society that came in and uh, committed quite a few atrocities. I don't, quite a few seems reductive they yeah um they yeah they were like freaking destroying like koreans they were using them committing terrible crimes against them and then you have a character like dong mei who is korean but he's part of the society that committed these atrocities and they felt like it was wrong that they gave him such a reason to um they gave him such a reason to be the way he was. It's like, oh, well, he doesn't care about Korea because he was abused by Koreans. And so it's kind of okay that he turned around and did what he did to these people. And I guess they were just, whoever, like, the people writing these letters to the Blue House, um, the which is the White House equivalent, um, were pretty much saying there was no there there will never be justification for atrocities committed against Korea. Like, there, this will never be. It doesn't matter that they, like, created this character that was the butcher's boy uh, that was nearly killed for because of the hierarchical system that was wrong, but, like, it doesn't justify the actions taken by the Mucin society against Koreans at that time. Which I thought was interesting because it kind of, like, you can't please everyone, but I guess it was interesting, like, that response of being, like, this character who, like, was a good guy, like, we cannot condone any of his behavior because he was still part of this, like, like, there's still so much hurt, like, justifiably so, uh, Mm -hmm. about what happened that maybe they, I don't know. I guess maybe, like, that's where the hard line was drawn around these Japanese characters, where it's like, I don't know, we just don't feel like there is any conflict that is enough to, like, justify what happened. So they have to just be bad guys in our history. Yeah, that's fair. I think I said the same thing about, like, um, seeing Nazis portrayed in um, in most, like, Western media, right? We never, we don't really get, like, a sympathetic Nazi. They're usually just kind of, like, bad guys um because maybe for that same reason we just like don't yet have the um the distance the historical distance to be like uh 
let's look at these characters or these individuals or this this event outside of like just being unjustifiable right um yeah so yeah i think that that's that's a fair point um yeah to i guess like to lighten it back up um do you have a favorite character out of that you got out of this drama Oh man, it's hard because I just I, I did I liked the the trio I liked the three guys um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and I was yeah invested in all, each of their stories like through the whole thing I don't know if I if I preferred one over the other in any uh, particular instance um, yeah um, I liked the I liked all the comedy characters too uh, anyone that was kind of there for for comic relief the uh, the translator that worked for uh, the uh, um, legation, the legation that uh, was always roasting Eugene over his like uh, <laughs> his language skills. Excellent. Oh, um, I don't even think we talked about his scene where he wrote, where Eugene wrote his name on his hand. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was beautiful. That that hurt me too. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. It's like, look, I learned. Remember all those times you roasted me? Hold on to them because I'm about to die a terrible (laughs) but beautiful death. Remember that. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I loved him. I also loved the comedic characters. I was so thrilled by the inclusion of the pawn shop owners. They were some of the best characters around. Yeah. Yeah, those guys had a great, and like they had like a full on character arc too, right? Where they start off as like slave hunters and then turn into pawn shop owners and then righteous army, uh, freedom fighters. Like, yeah, full, um, full, full arc that I think was really cool. We want to see that. Yeah, but they were so consistent with their characterization too, in the sense that even in the end, when they were like, well, you know, if we run. There will still be gunshots. We don't have to die here. And <laughs> it showed just like how comically pragmatic they were to the very end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, we know these woods pretty well. Yeah, we could probably just like run away. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, trying to think any other highlight characters that I that I particularly liked or or didn't like. Um, or like highlight moments. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have like a favorite scene? Um, hmm, a favorite scene? That's a good question. I'd have to think about it for a minute. Did you have a favorite scene? Um, I'm pretty bad at this game because my memory is not great for TV shows. But I think my favorite scene might have been the fight between Aishin and Hinakudo in Liwanik's house. Because it comes out of nowhere... It's something that I never would have expected the show to include, and it would have been fine without it. We could have never had that scene, and they could have still had somewhat of a relationship. But with it, it changed everything about their relationship, and it was just so well done. Just a sword versus a rifle, or a... Did she use an actual sword or a fencing sword? I can't remember. Yeah, I think she grabbed a she grabbed a fencing sword off of the wall of her dad's house. So cool. Yeah, yeah like a stiletto or something. Um, but it was uh, 
that was such an iconic moment um, as far as, like, I don't know. I'm so used to, even when there's, like, fighter women in a K-drama, usually it's still, like, you never really get scenes where two women take each other on in combat. Uh-huh. And and still, like, even kind of furthering it, neither woman was a bad guy. Like, both of them were... Like, it was a tense moment because you want both of them to win. And uh-huh. you know, as the watcher, that they're not even there for the same thing. And that if they knew, they wouldn't be fighting each other and they resolve it that way where it's like, oh, okay, well, here's your thing. I'll take my thing. This never happened. And then Asian's uh-huh. like, oh, no, I'm going to keep bringing this up forever. <laughs> but it's so cool. Yeah, that was a really cool scene. Rick, do you have a favorite scene? Um, so I'm going to go for my favorite scene aside from the events after Miss Haman's death, because mm-hmm. I feel like we've talked about that one a lot. Um, I think, kind of like you said, uh, M and Jason, like, we, I think we all have a hard time because it was such a beautifully done K-drama that it's hard to, like, uh, pick just one. Uh huh. You feel like you'll pick one, and then we'll get an email that's like, "Why didn't you pick this one?" And we'll be like, "I would have. I really would have if I'd thought of it." Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's almost impossible. Um, whew, I think maybe, I think maybe the scene where Hui Song is kind of looking back at like all of the people he got to meet on the journey and how they've given his life meaning was like really good um but even then it's like that was so meaningful but something that maybe was even more meaningful to me personally about Hui Sung's character was actually his meeting with uh Takashi Mori when Takashi Mori tried to intimidate him in any way to do anything and Hui Sung was he wasn't having it but he wasn't having it as himself like he was just joking about it he wasn't even taking the situation seriously even though you knew he knew it was a serious moment and a serious threat he was just like i don't know man don't even talk to me (laughs) it was the epitome of his character and that all those annoying aspects that made you hate him at the beginning of the show suddenly are being used against your common enemy and you're like this is everything I wanted and I didn't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. So it might've been that for me just cause there was like, it felt like such a um, full circle moment for his character, but like the best circle I've ever seen drawn the most perfect circle. <laughs> yeah. 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 Interestingly, I, I was thinking on it on my favorite scene and I think it's also a scene with Hui Sung. Um, and it's, it was the scene where, um, he he goes uh, he's he's with the family and it's the the 50th day of the morning for uh lord go yeah um, why didn't i pick this scene damn it yeah yeah, so yeah they yeah the the japanese soldiers show up and and they're like um you know causing a causing a fuss and a fight breaks out and it's just like the family and then the japanese soldiers like start shooting and Hui Sung helps them the best he can to like uh, help them get away, and uh, is like standing there with like the rifle as all of the reinforcements show up, and like you're kind of like, oh man, 
like how's this gonna go he's standing there all bloody with a gun and uh then the righteous army shows up and and starts um uh and helps i feel like that that scene was like you know that hold your breath moment uh when he's just standing there in the middle of the courtyard yeah and it's very emotional um when Asian saves him as well. Like, it's not just, like, a beautifully shot scene because it is, like, visually stunning, but it's also just that moment of... I've already said this in one of our episodes, so I'm so sorry for repeating myself, but, like, I don't think it can be said enough how beautiful it is that despite the fact that she never held the same romantic love, she's now being the shield for him that he offered to be for her. Like, they, they really did become friends. Yeah, and that actually that reminds me of um, even again it's kind of a similar line is um, in kind of near the end uh, one of the last later episodes maybe the last episode when um, Dong Mei says like I'm not gonna get in your palanquin like uh, was I I thought was also like a a really strong moment again kind of that the Asians protecting them you know or has protected them in the past. And that, like, uh, Dong Mei kind of recognizes that he's like, oh, I, like, yeah, I could, like, go wherever you're going. I could just stay with you, and I'd probably be fine, like, you know, but he's like, but that would be you protecting me, so, and that's, like, not my fate. Yeah, that wasn't the promise I made. Powerful, yeah, those, those moments of Asian protecting the, protecting the boys. Yeah. Always good, good moments. Yeah, so good. Mm, man, I kind of want to just keep talking about this drama forever, if you guys have more <laughs> stuff to say. I just, I've, we've been through so much with this drama. How do we, how do we possibly end it? <laughs> how do we say goodbye? Yeah. Um, do you have any more history facts that maybe are on the more boring end so that we can be like, okay, we'll <laughs> cut you off enough. here. <laughs> <laughs> End the podcast. Thank you. Um, history facts? No. Yeah, but only boring ones. Yeah, they have to be boring ones. There's no such thing as a boring history fact. They're all interesting. <laughs> Said like a true historian. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Here's one. Yes. I, I saw this on IMDb. Uh, they <laughs> accidentally made... The, so if you, if you look at the American flags in the show, they're 50 stars, and they wouldn't be because there weren't 50 oh. states. That's yeah. so interesting. I did not think about that. Mm-hmm. This was before our home state was uh, was included on the flag. Whoa. Utah wasn't even there. Utah, you weren't even a thing. Long before you were born, a man named Eugene Choi, a, <clears throat> a young Korean woman in her uh, fight against Japanese colonization of Korea. Do you think Eugene Choi would have been able to join the military? In the 1800s? Um, that's a good question. Uh, Thank you. I thought of it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I think that there would have been a, a segregated um, outfit of, um, you know... Asian Americans. Yeah, Asian Americans that, that maybe served in a in a separate battalion or, uh, or group. I'd have to look into it because I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, the... I mean, the military was pretty thoroughly segregated all the way until World War, uh, World War Two. So, unfortunate. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. You have to tell us about Kyle Moore. Yeah. What are your favorite Kyle Moore facts? <laughs> Real-life Kyle Moore. The, the actor? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember his name. Do you remember? Uh, oh, man. McKinnis. I think his last name is McKinnis. Um, he's Korean-American. Oh, he's half-American? I think so. Okay, I guess Canadian. I guessed not gonna guess because I like to win. <laughs> Um, I, think... I guessed Canadian because of the way he said the words Galdarn, or the word, <laughs> I guess. It was subtitled as one word, which was even worse than Galdarn. It was Goldarn. Um, but the way he said it was so stilted that it just felt like someone who had learned English in America would could have at least like done that deep southern spin and made it sound almost natural. <laughs> But he was like, Eugene, give us a Goldarn hug. <laughs> he grew up in acting school, America, not the Deep South. Yeah, he's from... I'm curious if... Okay, so here's the thing. He he grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So Whoa. he might have like a, like a, you know, that kind of Wisconsin accent that like maybe he had to kind of fight through a little bit to like get the, <laughs> the, the voice he wanted for... Uh, for this character um yeah that's really He's funny David I, that's, that's yeah, practically american or that's practically canadian if you're from wisconsin you're practically <laughs> canadian, canadian. <laughs> that's fair <laughs> or oh, david lee mckinnis do you have any facts about eugene che aka lee byunghan um he he I think is a black belt in Taekwondo. Whoa. I think so. Yeah. Raquel said he speaks like four languages. He cannot also be a black belt. Some people have accomplished things in their lives, and then some people have created a K-drama podcast, and that's about One it. One podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Um, here. How many interviews did you watch of him? Um, I watched one interview where he was being interviewed for his role playing an assassin in, um, the Magnificent Seven. Um, and, uh, that one was, was pretty cool. Um, and he, he was talking about how they actually recommended another movie based on that. He said, uh, there's a Korean Western called the good, the bad and the weird. And, uh, the the guy he was he was being co-interviewed with another actor and they both recommended uh watching that movie if you liked the magnificent seven as like a western film um and then after that he played another assassin in uh red two which is like a that spy movie with um a bunch of the those kind of big um oh yeah like bruce actors, willis like bruce willis and uh uh, that's it yeah that's it Bruce Willis <laughs> that's all my brain can contribute uh, I saw that he had been in a G.I. Joe movie and it seems like I had seen him and maybe he was a bad guy but I wasn't sure because I don't actually have any real memory of watching the G.I. Joe mo movie other than it was on TV once back when I lived in a place that had normal television and yeah. so I, watched I think it. he played I think he played the the Cobra Ninja 
in mm. in G.I. Joe. So he's he would have been a bad guy. Yeah. Oh no, is he always the bad guy? Well, he was a good guy in, in The Magnificent Seven. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think you said assassin. assassin, and my brain said bad guy. Yeah. Assassins are bad. Just a, just a good assassin. <laughs> Don't worry. Just a good assassin. <laughs> he does yeah, murder, he likes playing but for the right reasons. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm entirely impressed with him. I just, I know this is like a pretty interesting hill to decide to die on for some reason but he might be the best actor in history because he convincingly played like a million different cultures in this k-drama convincingly like i was pretty convinced by his um ability to play a u.s soldier in history Mm -hmm. um and i was also completely convinced of him being kind of the like jaded former slave from Joseon. So yeah. Yeah, it was a really dynamic role with a lot of complexities uh that I think he he really leaned into and and sold really well. Um yeah. it was a great choice for for that role. Yeah. I think all of the casting was great. I don't I don't I don't know if there was any anyone that like I guess you you guys would know more than me about like uh, if if you could replace actors for from different shows because obviously I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't I'll... think I would. I saw I think I saw that Hinakudo, the actress who played her, the role was offered to a different actress who turned it down due to scheduling issues, and then it was offered to the actress who ended up playing her, and I was like, that's insane to me. How could she be the second choice? She right. is Hinakudo. She and I feel that way about her. everyone in this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be hard to replace anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I only can ever think of, uh, like, and again, this is my, just my own exposure to Korean media, but, like, it'd have to be, like, a, someone playing one of the funny characters being replaced with someone from, like, the Running Man cast <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think overall I can't really give any real critique to this show. Um, The only thing, and I didn't mention it in our finale episode, and I was going back and forth between deciding whether or not I wanted to mention it, but one thing that um, was... It wasn't that it bothered me that Eugene Choi died at the end of this drama, because I actually, kind of like you said, it almost felt like a complete story. And there wasn't, like, it was a good death. He died protecting the woman he loves, which is kind of what he had devoted the rest of his life to. Um, I was, I had some reservations about the amount of loopholes present in his death. Like, for example, he kind of had all of the control in that moment and could have just, like, backed the Korean soldiers into the car and then said, like, stay there, then shot the bullet and, like, close the door or whatever you know yeah like like shove like shoved the guy in close the door and step back and shot the the did this exact same thing that he did but he needed to like yeah like they needed an extra condition that would have made it so that he couldn't like do that and i it, it didn't seem like they had one but we were which... talking about it before we recorded and it feels like titanic a little bit where I feel like his intention was to protect Aishin from the bullets that were going to come out of that door. 
because mm, the soldiers probably would have tossed fair. the businessman aside and started shooting, started shooting through the, the door or whether the door was yeah. open. But I feel like he could have done that on Aisheen's sure. side of the train. Yeah. But I don't know. Raquel, do you feel like um, there's that famous, uh, it's um, Hitchcock's refrigerator test where in the moment when you were watching the show, did you think that? Or was it just something you kind of thought about later? It was definitely something I thought about. Like, it's not like it was like I agonized over it. And then I was like, no, he could have. He totally could have. It it was pretty shortly after, but I was very in the moment of the show. Um, so kind of a little bit after I was just like, also, Aishin talked about having no bullets in her gun but there were guns of soldiers she had shot down that she could have picked up and leveraged, it felt like. And no, maybe they were all out of bullets, too. Um, so, yeah, there were just, like, little things. But like you said, it, it was definitely afterward where I was just like, mm, I just won't... I, I've had more time to think about this than Eugene. I know I have, but, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing is like maybe if as long as like in the moment, like while you're watching the scene and it's unfolding and you, you know, you're like invested in it and you weren't like, wait a minute, that, you know, like he, he should have done it this way. Why did he do it that way? Then I feel like it, it passes the test and like the, the show did a good job of like keeping you entertained and captivated. Um, but mm. yeah, in fact, yeah. I, I would have thought they had done it a, an even different way because what I thought in the moment was going to happen was he was going to shoot the bullet before they confronted Aishin and distract them um, from... Yeah. Like, I thought he was going to, like, shoot that businessman, like, before they ever were like, you're the person that we're looking for. Like, maybe they were just becoming, like, getting, like suspicious of her or whatever and then he was gonna like shoot the guy and then they were all going to go after him and then maybe he dies that way or something so this was more beautiful than that and that was how Raquel as Eugene Choi would have handled the situation so. <laughs> zero goodbyes yeah. just shoot the businessman and deal with the consequences in the premium class yeah nice um what would you rate it and what would be your rating scale i think you should set the rating scale and ask me from there <laughs> okay um on a scale of one to ten cherry blossoms drawn onto a samurai sword what would you rate <laughs> this show uh i would say this show is a like mm, 10 i would say this is 10 cherry blossoms on a on a on a samurai sword. All right. Raquel? I agree. I would give it a 10 out of 10 cherry blossoms on a samurai sword. What? That's what I was going to give it. 10 <laughs> out of 10 cherry blossoms on a samurai sword. Perfect show! Yeah! Th change nothing. Change no one, change nothing. <laughs> <laughs> For any Another. complaints we may have had, <laughs> yes. we were wrong. And yep. we're sorry. And if you have any... We're wrong. <laughs> if you have any lack of complaints, 
Email us at playonkpodcast at gmail.com. We'll pass them all along to Jason. <laughs> or you can comment directly on our episodes on our website, playonk.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter, find a link to our Patreon, and find our affiliate links to support the show. Yeah, we stream on multiple different platforms so you can find us on stitcher blueberry itunes spotify and most others most of those places you can rate review or subscribe or do multiple of those things and any little bit that you do helps us out and if you just want to give us a quick hey we are on instagram at play on k podcast or on twitter at play on k yeah um did you already talk about our direct patreon no Ooh, go to patreon.com slash playonk to find our, uh, to, to join us, to contribute financially to our cause, and to find all of our bonus material. And keep an eye out for Jason in, I don't, historical magazines or something, I don't know. Yeah, in the history uh, stuff. In the history books. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Jason. It actually has been the most informative episode of Play on K in history, and it was actually a blast having you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, bye. <laughs> okay, bye.